Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we'll be focusing on legislation and speaking about some of the key changes that practitioners should be aware of. We will be hearing from Teresa Higgins and Lisa Lewington from Barbara EHS and dipping into Barbara's recent legislation webinar, which featured lawyers Simon Joyston Beckel and Kizzy Augustin. Then we'll hear from Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at IEMA, who provides an update on the latest environmental legislation changes. Finally, you'll hopefully recall that last month when we spoke to Professor Dr. Andrew Sharman. We will end this episode by hearing the second part of that interview where Andrew speaks about his year as Irish President and what's next for him. Part of our focus on legislation this month, our sister product, Barbara EHS, ran the second of its biannual legislation update webinars. We're going to open this episode by listening to the introduction of that webinar, where lawyers Kizzy Augustin, partner at Russell Cook, and Simon Joyston Beckel, director at Turnstone Law, discuss risk assessments when it comes to returning to work during COVID-19. Returning to the workplace in times of COVID, we just identified here some important issues to address. Well, I think we should start with the question of risk assessment. Kizzy, has anything changed? I get asked this question a lot. And I think because of COVID, everyone starts to panic that they need to be doing something new or there are lots of onerous responsibilities. I've always said to clients, start from the basic position. We've always had an obligation to carry out risk assessments. The management of health and safety at work regs requires us to do that making suitable and sufficient assessments of risks to health and safety of employees and non-employees. There should be a review of that risk assessment if it's not valid or if there's been a significant change. And COVID, for me, certainly warranted such a review. So things haven't changed per se. It just means there's a new, very significant risk that needs to be addressed by way of a risk assessment. So that's kind of the starting point for me. I absolutely agree with that. And I think the other useful thing about risk assessment should be your friend rather than some horrendous thing you've got to do. I mean, yes, you certainly need to update, but also use the risk assessment process as a way of tackling those difficult COVID questions. So if you've got a difficult question, should we use this staircase or should we use face coverings in the office or should we get people back in or not. Whatever your difficult question is, and one of the difficult questions we had in, how can we work up close? Because our job involves working very close to other people. Do a risk assessment approach to answer your difficult question. Mm -hmm. Look at the pros and cons, balance the arguments, and make a decision. And the key is, with the risk assessment approach, is that if you go through the discipline, particularly if you put it in writing, even if you end up being wrong, as it turns out, you end up being wrong, you will be able to demonstrate a process that will make it far less likely that you get blamed. It's a really important defense measure to do good risk assessments on the difficult, the hardest topics. And Kizzy and I love to help people with that. Kizzy, go on. I was just gonna say, it's old advice, but people do tend to get bogged down in the detail with risk assessment and having a document in place. What's just as important as having a a suitable and sufficient, in quotes, risk assessment is making sure that it's a dynamic review. So it changes and you adapt it to ongoing changing risks. 
that are associated with your activities. So I think as Simon says, it's not something to be scared of because if you get it right and you at least tackle the relevant risks to your organisation, you're not going to be criticised for at least attempting to do that, albeit there might well be something more you could have done or something that was more reasonable in terms of including in a risk assessment. The other thing is one of the big criticisms by the HSE is the fact that you might have a risk assessment that identifies risks, but you don't go into detail about the relevant and suitable control measures that should be in place. So I've had a number of clients who have been hauled over the coals by authorities because they have this great document, but they don't have a detailed appreciation for the relevant control measures that should be in place. Throughout the rest of that webinar, Kizzy and Simon went on to discuss further important issues that need to be addressed as staff return to work. They also talked about the Fire Safety Bill, Building Safety Bill, and legislation around workplace mental health and wellbeing. If you'd like to listen back to the webinar in full, you can register using the on-demand link in the episode description. As an added resource for SHP readers, we work closely with Barbara EHS to produce our October legislation ebook, which again you can find the link in the description. Lisa Lewington, Barbara's editor, and her team put in the integral work behind the scenes that enables us to put that ebook together. So I was keen to speak to Lisa, as well as Barbara's director, Teresa Higgins, about some of the recent legislation changes and how they go about keeping on top of what is changing in order to update their audience and customers. I began by asking Teresa to explain a little bit about what Barbara EHS is. We've been working with health and safety professionals, environmental professionals, facilities managers for a good number of years, 60 in total we've been going as a company. And all we've done is we've pulled together all of the information that you can find throughout lots of different websites all in one place. So there's some great websites out there. You just don't get time to look at them. So we've pulled it all together, everything from the HSC, legislation, directives, standards, guidance, all under one search engine. However, our clients then said, look, that's great, but can you make sense of it, please? So we've put together a whole range of resources. We've written things like how-to guides, director's briefings, toolbox talks, employee fact sheets, all sorts of information just to help people save time, which has been great with COVID because, as you know, the understanding, the guidance and stuff, we've written so much to try and help clients. So we're always involving. It's just trying to save people time and effort on information, Ian. Great. It's just kind of pulling all that information, isn't it? Making the lives, you know, these people have have busy enough roles as it is. So it's, it's getting all that information to them in the easiest and quickest way possible to save them going and doing all the trawling of all the legislation. And equally so, not only have our clients' jobs evolved where they've got to keep up on top of legislation, they've also now got accreditations to try and keep up to date with like 45,001 and 14,001. And and with that comes gap analysis and legal registers that they need to keep up to date. So what we try and do is stay in touch with our clients constantly, say, well, what do you need us to do? And we've put together like legal registers for 45,000, 50 and 14 that we keep rather than Excel spreadsheets. There's a gap analysis tool that we've got. So we're always, always moving with the times and our clients' challenges. Great. And, and we work at SHP really closely with you guys at Barber. As most of you listening now will hopefully be aware of, we've recently released the October legislation ebook, 
that comes out twice a year and we work really really closely with Barbara to put that together and use all the the information they provide and that ebook is based on a document which Barbara put together which summarizes all the very latest legislation changes in an easy to digest way and the link in the episode guide so uh, please check that out if you've not already downloaded it now Lisa you and your team put that document together that we based the ebook from can you tell us a little bit about how you go about collating all the information that goes into that yeah hi Ian essentially we monitor what's published on pretty much a constant basis. We regularly go through the government websites, we all look at legislation which is published, we keep fully up to date with the HSE, and we take everything which has been published and really evaluate how much value it's going to add for users of the health and safety world in general. We'll obviously publish it within the Barber service. And also for key content, we'll heavily summarise the real key points, really help people get to what they need to know quickly. And it's from our knowledge and understanding that will then pull out the key areas for the legislation update. That's part of the challenge, isn't it? Because you know, I've been sifting through a lot of these legislation documents around coronavirus on the government website, and they're extremely in-depth pieces of, of information. So the, the fact that you guys can pull that out, the highlights quickly and easily and give people the, the kind of headlines, and then if they obviously need to go and look up in more detail than they can do, but you're providing that quick and easy access to the major points for them. Yeah, and we'll also alert people when changes have been made. I think when I last had a look, the COVID working safely guidance for offices, for example, had been changed 10 times since it was originally published. So the speed of change at the moment is just quite incredible. And it's staying on top of that, isn't it? I'm sure you can understand a lot of that legislation ebook document is around COVID-19 and the legislation that's changed around that. How hard has it been for you and the team to keep up with those changes and, and to provide your customers with the very latest information? It's pretty much a constant job. It is never ending. I think at the moment there's over 200 pieces of legislation related to COVID. That's across the UK and Ireland, with more being published on pretty much a weekly basis. Every time there's changes to local lockdowns, the wearing of face masks, more legislation is published. And often the guidance will then be updated to align with the legislation changes. Your experience in the role at Barbary, so have you ever seen anything like this before in terms of the speed of change of legislation? No, never. This is completely unique. And also, there's the change in legislation and guidance, but then there's also the implications of those changes on existing legislation and guidance. For example, you think of things like DSE and home working and how companies look after their people who are working from home and how that works with DSE. There's a lot to consider. I'm sure there is. I don't envy the task of putting that together. So I really appreciate when you send it across to me in that easy to digest format and then I can build the ebook from that. So it's it's valuable to, to myself as well as as well as to, to the practitioners. Another section of the ebook is around the building safety bill and fire safety consultation. Um, there's been some changes there. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the highlights there? The fire safety bill really relates to multi-occupied residential buildings. We do go into quite a lot of detail into the exact changes within the day. For me, one of the most interesting kind of development really is the consultation which is out, particularly how the focus could change on risk assessments and the competency of those who risk assess for fire. So I think the consultation is really worth keeping tabs on. What kind of changes are, when do you anticipate the changes coming up for that and what's kind of on the horizon for that over the next few months? The consultation closed last week. I'm not entirely sure if a date has been made available as to when the response would be published. So it's really a case of keeping a watch to see what happens next. 
And is there anything else within that legislation document that you think you want to pull out and that our listeners should be really aware of? I think all of it around the fire safety, particularly, everyone should be very aware of. It's definitely worth seeing which points really relate to people as individuals and companies. And obviously coronavirus has taken up a, a large part of our of our time over the last few months and that's kind of knocked the other uh, the other buzzword out of the equation. So Brexit is going to be coming back onto the horizon again at the, at the start of next year. What is there that practitioners should be aware of there over the next few months that could be coming as a result of the Brexit negotiations? Primarily, I think reach is something to be considered. People need to be aware of how the changes for reach will affect them. The fact that we'll have the UK reach and EU reach both operating and people will need to align with both where their business falls into that category. Also, workers and their status and their eligibility to work in this country. At the moment, I think we're still waiting to see if there's going to be any further changes. It's still quite tricky because obviously everything's still up in the air. At the moment, it's looking like there may be a no-deal Brexit, but it's difficult to tell because things could change again quite quickly. Another one to uh, to keep an eye on then over the next few months. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, we will provide the link to the legislation document within the guide for this episode. And you can also find it on the SHP website where you can go in and download it. Teresa, can you just give us a little bit of, of information about where people can go to find out about Barber and its services? Well, obviously, Ian, if they're looking at SHP, they can look at SHP, type in Barber and we come up throughout SHP. So thank you very much for that. You can also just type in Barber Health and Safety or Barber EHS. And we come up on the internet and you'll see our homepage and find out lots of different information from us there. Or you can give us a call on 0845 300 0241. That's 0845 300 0241. And just find out more. It's free. We like to walk people through. We like to learn from what people want from us as a service. So just you know, have a chat with the team. And you've been providing some uh, additional resources, haven't you, during the coronavirus? So you've had you talked about the helpline there and you've been providing some of your content kind of free to air for everybody to, to, to access as well. So what else have you been doing during that period? Well, we've written all sorts of well, well, actually, to be fair, Lisa and her team have been brilliant. They've written information before our clients needed it. So the last one that they've just written is the contact information, just a quick, you know, what we should be doing, what we need to do to keep ahead of what's happening and how to keep compliance. So they've written some great resources, reopening of premises, homeworking, obviously vulnerable workers has been amazing. Just really, really short, sharp information to share with the company and keep the business compliant. A wealth of information for you to keep on top of and take in there. Hopefully, SHP and Barbara EHS can go some way to making that process a little easier for you. As I mentioned, you can find links to both our legislation update webinar and ebook in the episode description. So please go ahead and check those out. Next up, we're going to hear from Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at IEMA, the professional body for environmental and sustainability professionals, who provides an update on some of the latest legislative developments. Martin kicked off by speaking about the Environmental Bill, a piece of legislation which is going through the House of Commons at the moment. As a reminder, it's setting a new governance framework as the UK has left the EU and prepares to end the transition period. It's a monumental piece of legislation in a way, 244 pages 
the governance section introduces a requirement on government to set legally binding targets, long-term targets, in the areas of air quality, water, biodiversity, and waste and resources. It also establishes a new Office for Environmental Protection that has two roles. One is to scrutinise and advise government on its environmental performance and progress towards achieving its targets and plans. And crucially, it also has a role in monitoring and enforcing the implementation of environmental law by public authorities. So those public authorities can be anything from central government to local government, also be the regulators, and a really interesting role that that will have. Its powers of enforcement include being able to issue information and decision notices, but then be able to escalate its actions through the courts. So potentially you have the Office for Environmental Protection being able to take and hold government to account with legal action. So a really important development day to day probably won't have a huge impact in terms of businesses except that we would expect public authorities to be more focused on making sure that they implement properly all the requirements that they have under existing laws and regulations and also I think potentially ensuring that enforcement is properly carried out so in that monitoring of the implementation of environmental law clearly a requirement there is on the enforcement bodies like the environment agency to make sure that businesses are complying and so potentially the Office for Environmental Protection could look into that and determine whether it felt that that was being properly done. So potentially quite a powerful new body in our overarching environmental governance framework. Also of interest will be environmental principles and a new policy statement requiring government ministers, not just in the Department for the Environment, but also across all, except Treasury and Moody, all ministers when engaging in policy development to apply core environmental principles such as the precautionary principle, the polluter pays, proximity principle, etc. in the development of their policies. So this is very much about trying to integrate environmental thinking into all parts of government activity. So whether that's in the Department of Transport or the Department for Education, Ministry of Housing, Communities, Local Government, etc. So again, a really interesting way of how to mainstream the consideration of environment into broader policy. The Environment Bill also has some thematic chapters on different topic areas. So it has a section on waste and resource efficiency, some important factors there, and I'll come on to some of the details that link into this in a moment with some new regulations that are coming through. But extended producer responsibility, so providing a lot more expectation on businesses to pick up the costs of dealing with household waste and packaging waste in particular and the costs of disposal of that. So whereas as consumers we currently pay for that service through our council tax bill, increasingly we will expect the burden to shift to businesses that are putting packaging and materials on the market and then paying this extended producer responsibility obligation to cover that cost. So again, you know, where does pollution, if you like, in terms of polluter pay fall? Well, it's going to be on the businesses that are putting products and packaging onto the market. Another really interesting provision in that part of the bill is on resource efficiency and in particular implementing eco-design expectations. So looking at product durability, repairability, 
in terms of making sure that products are designed maybe more optimally and with better material choices and also information to consumers as well so that consumers are able to make better informed decisions about how they can either repair equipment or take back schemes or properly dispose of things. So that would have quite big implications for companies that are putting certain types of products onto the market. So that's likely to come through. In terms of the biodiversity chapter, there's a lot in there, local nature recovery strategies across the whole of the country and biodiversity net gain for new developments. So if you are involved in building new premises or you're involved in house building or whatever it might be, then you will have to be able to demonstrate that your development gives a net gain of 10% in terms of biodiversity value. And there is a market for biodiversity credits, which has been established as well in there. So, so some interesting things there. Other areas in terms of water, so quite a lot more on water companies and environmental water management schemes. Of interest to some businesses, if you have abstraction licenses, the Environment Agency will be, over a period of time, be able to remove some of the headroom if you're not using it in those abstraction licenses with no compensation. So an interesting one there. And a lot more on air quality particularly looking at how local authorities can collaborate more effectively and also some fines potentially for consumers or penalties to consumers who, for example, wood-burning stoves in urban areas are potentially an area of interest. So the Environment Bill, a big piece of legislation, it's due to re-enter or restart its committee bill stage. It's been on hold because of COVID and various pressures on Parliament, but it's due to reconvene on the 3rd of November and complete by the beginning of December, and then it will be up into the House of Lords. We anticipate now that the bill will receive royal assent probably in spring 2021, and then there'll be an implementation period. A couple of things to update you on. So 1st of October, the Environmental Protection Plastic Straws, Cotton Buds and Stirrers regulations were introduced, which subject to a kind of transition arrangement, basically prohibit the supply or sale of single-use plastic straws and cotton buds to end users in England and also to single-use plastic drink stirrers to any customers, which could include businesses in England as well. So these uh, regulations come into effect. So from your business's perspective, you won't be able to use straws or get hold of straws or stirrers if they're made of plastic. So continuing this plastic theme in Wales, the Welsh government is considering introducing as a consultation live at the moment on limiting single-use plastic items and is actually proposing to ban a range of plastic items outright. So nine different types, so plastic stem cotton buds, cutlery, plates, beverage stirrers, straws, sticks for balloons, unfortunately not the balloons on the end of them, which if you kind of walk in the countryside, you'll see lots and lots of balloons, which is a pet hate of mine. Also looking to ban food containers made of expandable polystyrene, cups for beverages made from expanded polystyrene and any oxo-degradable products, for example, plastic bags, animal mulch films, etc., and certain plastic bottles. So all of those are currently being consulted on as being banned. So if you are a business which either produces those, then you need to be well aware of this. If you're a business that uses them, you need to start to think now about what alternatives there might be. 
And continuing the theme around waste and resources, the Scottish government has introduced a deposit and return scheme for certain materials that basically introduces a £20 deposit applied each time a drink in a relevant single-use container is sold in Scotland and provisions for retailers to be able to offer take-back schemes. So I think there's two important things here. Firstly, what we're seeing is quite a lot of activity across different parts of the UK trying to tackle the waste crisis that we have and in particular the plastics crisis but confusingly for practitioners a lot of this is being done with slight differences or quite substantial differences in different parts of the UK. Why is that important? Well if you multiple facilities across different parts of the UK then you will have different regulations with which you might have to comply that makes it more confusing and just more bureaucratic potentially also I think it makes it more difficult for consumers to know what they should do in in different places as well and it does mean that it's more difficult to give very direct statements about what consumers should do because If you have to do different things in different places, then that might make it more difficult for customers to understand. So a very quick answer through some of the key areas, but we are in a period of change and there's a lot more coming down the line as well. During the first part of my interview with Irish President Andrew Sharman, which featured in last month's episode, we spoke about adapting to work during COVID-19 and Andrew's latest collaborative book, 1% Safer, which features 137 chapters written by 137 different contributors, each one giving their best nugget of wisdom to make your organisation 1% safer. Since that episode was released, I have got my hands on a copy of the book, and it really is a fantastic read. All products from the sale of the book go directly to the 1% Safer Foundation, and there are still copies available, so I urge you to go and grab yourself a copy if you can. There is a link in the description of this episode. Andrew was elected as Irish President in September 2019, and as his presidency comes to an end, I was keen to catch up with him about his time at the helm and what's next for him. I began by asking Andrew his thoughts on how the role of the safety practitioner is going to change post-COVID-19. I think the pandemic has brought this remarkable opportunity for Irish practitioners wherever they are around the world, and I'm hearing that in the sessions that I'm running on, on LinkedIn each week, these Let's Talk coffee chats. We've had people from more than 50 countries joining us now, and all of them are saying they're being asked more of by their organisations. They're being included in more meetings, they're being trusted more, they're being listened to more. So I think that's one way that there's the potential for change. The challenge is OSH practitioners making sure that they broaden the discussions out from COVID and the pandemic to other occupational risks in the workplace. And that's been a challenge in the past for OSH practitioners to talk about health and well-being. Quite often, HNS practitioners say, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't get involved in things like stress or health or disease issues. The pandemic has forced OSH practitioners to have to understand about the disease called coronavirus and COVID. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is giving opportunities to build confidence to build trust and to build bonds between our practitioners and leaders and encouraging and in fact perhaps even forcing in some cases OSH practitioners to have to learn or improve their social skills, their leadership skills, their influencing, their, their ability to communicate and so on. So I think that really heralds the big change. I think the hope that I've had for the last five or six years that OSH becomes recognised 
as a boardroom seat, as a leadership discipline, I think that's what's most likely to happen now over the next couple of years. We'll, we'll find the profession becoming more professional and more highly regarded at the top table. You talk about trust and confidence there. What have you seen or heard in terms of how businesses are implementing keeping staff confident and safe to return to work and making sure that they feel confident that they can actually start to return to the workplace in terms of getting back to a relative normal? It's different, isn't it? Around the world in in different places, organisations are are thinking about it in ways that make sense to them and, and trying to do their very best. At IOSH, we've put together lots of resources. In fact, we've been running almost weekly webinars for the entire period of the pandemic so far since since April. And I think I've hosted something like about 20, 25 of them now with experts from business as well as from NGOs like the World Health Organization, the ILO and, and, and others to try to help practitioners find the resources for returning to work safely. And you can download all of that on IOSH.com, by the way. It's all free resource to pick up. But I think the point that's really worth leveraging here is, is, as you mentioned, the importance of trust. OSH practitioners have got this moment where they can try to foster trust with leaders. And it's really key that they do that. I think it offers the opportunity for repositioning the profession as well as repositioning the professional within the organisation. So thinking about trust and building trust is absolutely key. And what do you think the world of work looks like post-pandemic? You know, are we going to see large-scale meetings and in back in offices where the office is full of people, or are we going to have to still have a certain degree of separation and, and maybe flexible working going forward? And the way we shop is that going to be different? The way we go to to sporting events and and conferences. Uh, obviously, you're you're involved in a lot of conferences yourself. How do you see the future of live events and conferences and and working practices going forward? Well, we're not going back. That's for sure. You know, the way we used to do things. That ain't ever coming back. The world of work has changed uh, and will continue to change and we'll see continued evolution over the next few months. As well as acting as president of IOSH, I'm also chairman of the board of the Institute of Leadership and Management. And the Institute has done some remarkable research over the last few months. And just a couple of headlines from that. Only one in three workers expect to return to the workplace. Only one in three. Now, These are predominantly managers, supervisors and leaders. I'm not talking about people on production floors or construction sites. But one in three managers and leaders expect to go back. 25% of those managers and leaders say they're going to move organisations after the pandemic. Now, that indicates that they're not happy with the way their organisations have been managing the pandemic or supporting the employee through the pandemic. And 50% of those managers and leaders say home working is here to stay. So the brave new world whatever it's going to look like for your organisation, my organisation or any other organisation, is absolutely right now within the grasp of the workers who say, this is what I want. And if I can't get that, I'm prepared to to vote with my feet and do something different. Now, will everybody do that? I don't know. But I expect that we're going to see lots of people saying, you know what, productivity was just as good when people were working from home. So let's let people work from home. You know, I was on a call yesterday where, with a massive multinational corporation and the CEO said that in their survey, and this is a survey of a business that has something like 500,000 people around the world, he said the majority of employees filled it in and the majority of employees said that they're gaining between one and two hours of extra time every day by working from home because they're not commuting and, and all that other stuff. And I said, so what does that mean in terms of productivity? If they're gaining all that time, are they working less? He said, no, they're still working just as hard and we've still got exactly the same productivity. In fact, it's better now while they're working at home than before the pandemic. 
So I, I think there's benefits for workers and for businesses in getting this right. But of course, what right looks like depends on the organisation, the culture, the community, the country and many other factors. Of course, that all brings with it its own, its own challenges as well in terms of well-being. You mentioned that you started up your video chats because you missed that social interaction. Um, that's obviously going to bring a lot of challenges to companies. And, and how are they going to combat that in terms of making sure that people aren't isolated uh, and they are kept up to date with, you know, just these simple ins and outs of going what going on in the office that you pick up. Are you standing around making a coffee in the morning? Yeah, I think that isolation point is a really big one to pick up. As a psychologist, I'm kind of thinking about thinking quite a lot. And right now I'm thinking about how people are going to be adversely affected by the experience of the pandemic. And indeed, with members of my presidential team at IOSH, we're putting together some, uh, some resources and some training around post-traumatic stress disorder, as we're already starting to see through IOSH surveys that up to 75% of IOSH members are feeling anxious, stressed, or in fear for the future as a result of the pandemic. So we can anticipate that mental health will be an issue moving forward. So what do we need to do? Well, I think leaders need to find ways of connecting with their teams more dynamically through video conferencing, through informal check-ins. There's a client that we work with who every Friday have a glass of beer or a glass of wine at 5.30 in the afternoon with their team. And they encourage them to just have a glass and get together on Zoom. And that's pretty cool. So I think some some informal aspects to using video conferencing is, is, is really important too. That could be helpful. And to try to be super alert at nonverbal communications when you're looking at people through Zoom and trying to sense them. And the only way we can do this is to really find ways of connecting and understanding each other and, and trying to know what we might normally see from Ian at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon or nine o'clock on a Monday morning. And if Ian doesn't look like we normally expect him to, if there's just something slightly different, to be bold enough to be able to say, hey, how are you doing? And to stick around and wait for the answer. And if you don't get it, to ask the question again and, and to really make sure that workers know that even if they're isolated or at home or in a different working environment, they're still able to be cared for and appreciated by, um, by their bosses. Absolutely. And we touched on a little bit in the first part of this chat as well about opportunity. Um, what do you think the role of the safety practices is going to be like in terms of helping businesses to put plans in place to prevent the issues that we've had this time around should there be a second wave or should there be another pandemic it sounds like pandemics are going to be around maybe not this one but you know it's something that we are a lot more aware of now and what role is safety practices going to play in, in future proofing businesses to make sure that we can continue to work through this in the future and we don't go into a standstill let's be clear about this in we created this pandemic you, me, and everybody else that travels for work. We created it. We've spread it by person to person to person around the world. This is a human disease that's been transmitted by humans. So as long as people are traveling, whether that's for pleasure or for work, this pandemic will continue, or at least the virus will continue. Its grip on humankind will vary depending on whether we uh, engage with physical distancing, whether we sanitize properly, whether we wear masks, whether we find a vaccine and all these other things. So this is going to be part of this new world that we're going to move into. Actually, when you think of it, though, it's just a risk. And OSH practitioners are brilliant at identifying risks, working out mitigating controls, and then putting those in place and monitoring them and ensuring that they're sustained. So this is not something new, really, in terms of the practice for professionals that, that work in, in OSH. So I think what we need to do is, is broaden the mind here and say, this is just an exercise in risk management. 
Now let's apply those risk management principles to this and any other pandemic or any other occupational or, or social disease and start broadening it out. And maybe as a Sena, and I wonder if it means that we get to broaden out the scope and remit of OSH professionals in organisations and society too. And you're coming up now to the end of your time as, as Irish president. We've talked about it a little bit during the chat now. I just want to ask, what does the role of the Irish president look like? What do you do as, a, as Irish president? What does that mean for your day-to-day doings? It's meant my life for the last few months. Apart from uh, writing that 1% Safer book and, and, and getting all the, the submissions done for that, all I've really done is, is worked on Irish stuff. When the pandemic hit, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to be the first president in 53 years of Irish presidents that's not going to get out and, and see people and be at branch meetings. And I, I got quite down about it, to be honest. I beat myself up about it. I thought, I've got to do something. And then luckily I realised that we had this amazing technology like Zoom and, and Blue Jeans and meeting. So I've managed to get to visit every one of the Irish branches, all 43. It's the first time any president's ever been to all of the branches in their presidential year, which has been brilliant because I've managed to get to talk with thousands of members around the world. So really the role is, is as an ambassador. But my role this year has been more than that. It's not just been about saying, hey, look, Irish is a wonderful thing and you should be proud to be a member of it. But instead, it's been about sharing resources, sharing perspective, sharing personal experience too, and, and perhaps allowing people to see that the pandemic has really rocked me. It's, it's given me quite a tough time over the last few months, as it has for everybody else. And somehow sharing that vulnerability seems to be useful to allow others to come forward and say, I'm feeling too, it is really tough. And that sharing of vulnerability perhaps brings a sense of solidarity. And, and that, that's been a cool thing for me. I've really enjoyed that feeling over these last few months. And looking back on your on your presidency, as well as getting out there to all the branches, what would you say is some of the some of the success stories? What have you achieved during your, your time as Irish president? I don't think I've achieved anything, to be honest. I've just put in some time pitching up and Zoom meetings and talking to people and answering as many questions as I could and hosting webinars. I think I've hosted 20, 25 webinars now with everybody from the Institute of Directors to WHO, the UN, the ILO, a whole bunch more. Or, or, or yesterday I hosted one where I moderated a debate with, with five brilliant panellists about what the future looks like and what the cost of COVID is. I guess all I've really done is just try to ask some questions to stimulate some discussion and to be the signpost pointing to where OSH practitioners and Irish members can get resources. So I think those are the success stories. They're not mine. They're the success stories that have been co-created by thousands of members, panellists in debates, speakers in sessions that I've organised. So not my successes, but our successes. I think as IOSH, as we like to say, or even as one OSH profession, that's how we need to see this. We're all united by the pandemic wherever we are. And if we try to strive for the greater human good rather than our own individual good, that kind of feels like a better way to be. And I think the one thing that's come out of the strand of this whole conversation is that the future of the safety professional is critical now more than ever. And there's there's great opportunity there, as we've discussed. And it's it's almost now more important than ever that safety professionals are are getting more involved in in their businesses. And I want to talk about you a a little bit more now in terms of what's next for you, Andrew Sharman. What what are you going to do post-presidency? What does the future look like for you? Up until today, it looked like going on vacation to South Africa to go do some shark diving. You know, that's something that's really important to me. And I haven't been out for a few months, so I'm missing shark activity. I had a ticket to go to South Africa for three weeks. Next month, I've been told today that that flight is now cancelled. So go to South Africa and diving with some sharks, not next. 
I've got another book in a pipeline. Uh, I'm, I'm working on that at the moment. We've been busy in my business, RMS. We've had some great success with our IOSH certificate program in behavioral safety leadership. It's fully online. You do it in four to six hours. I've been building new materials for that. And that's been exciting. We just launched our new IOSH certificate in workplace well-being leadership, another online program. And that's had a brilliant start. And then, of course, the 1% Safer book that we talked about in the first part of this interview. That's really taking up a, a lot of my time over the next few weeks and months, I think, as we launched the 1% Safer Foundation, the charitable organization to distribute the profits from the sale of the book, and really try to get people into this idea that it's not about all or nothing. It's not about zero accidents or it's failed. It's about marginal gains, incremental progress, step by step. I think that's the way we'll get out of the pandemic. And I think that's the way that we'll make real sustainable improvement in safety in every organisation around the world. I really like the juxtaposition there of you uh, talking about shark diving as a, as, a, as a safety professional. And it's one of the most interesting things, isn't it, about safety, about how it's not about stopping people from doing dangerous tasks. It's about allowing people to do risky tasks, dangerous tasks, but do them safely. And I think diving with sharks is a good, is a good example of that. Safety has never been around risk elimination. It's been around risk management. And so too are my hobbies. This morning, I jumped on my motorbike and shot off to go and meet someone from the ILO for a meeting. Last week, I was jumping off a mountain here in Switzerland with my paraglider on my back. I'm not trying to do these things because I'm an adrenaline junkie. That's not at all. I find myself very relaxed if I'm swimming with a shark or paragliding or base jumping or on my bike. Instead, it's about saying, what are the risks and what do I need to do to try to control those as best as I can? And then whatever residual risk is left, am I prepared to accept that risk or not? Is it tolerable? I guess it takes us all the way back to those earlier conversations about the role of the OSH professional, which is risk management. And it applies in our private lives as much as it does in our professional lives. It was a common thread throughout both parts of this interview about the opportunities Andrew believes are there to be grasped by practitioners. I really like the line about the profession becoming more professional. Being able to communicate efficiently has always been a key skill, but the adapting social skills and leadership skills and learning how best to utilise that new level of trust could be key moving forward. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all who are involved in this episode, Teresa Higgins, Lisa Lewington, Martin Baxter and Andrew Sharman, and thank you for listening. As I mentioned earlier, please do go back and listen to the first part of my chat with Andrew Sharman in episode 3 which features an interview about lone worker safety with geocoding system What Three Words. Episode 1, where we speak to SHP's most influential person in health and safety, Carl Simons from Thames Water, and Episode 2, which looked at burnout, are also still available. I'd like to point you in the direction of SHP's webinar Wednesdays, a series of sessions running every Wednesday from now up until early December, covering topics such as safety culture, risk assessments, leadership, driver safety and women's health. You can sign up to all of the sessions or the one that you prefer using the link in the description. And you can also listen back to the sessions on demand that you might have missed. Please be sure to stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode.